Katerina, can you hear me? So, um, uh, Irish Dr. Spontag, hello again. How are you? Hello, Jamie. Nice to hear your voice. How are you? Very, I'm doing very well, thank you. You've been well. How's your dogs? Um, the dogs are doing okay. Um, but my wife and I have had COVID. <laughs> oh no. Yep. <coughs> In fact, uh, I didn't take my test this morning, but as of yesterday, as I will be pointing out in my talk, uh, I still tested positive yesterday. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, and we're very grateful you're still here, actually. That's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> Well, it's it's kind of interesting because uh, I gave a, a more detailed version of this talk at a conference uh, earlier this week, and uh, yeah, uh, when they they asked me, you know, how are things going, and I told them I had COVID, they were like, "What?" and and you're still giving a talk? It's like, yeah, that's what we academics do, you know, neither rain nor sleep nor snow. <laughs> Society, society, I salute you for this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, I, I, I momentarily heard Katerina, but uh, it was very, very choppy. You're, you're actually quite clear. Am I clear for you? Very, yes, very clear. Good. But we don't have any feedback last. Remember the problems last time when you had to wear the headset around your, your ear, your oh. neck, and things. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I think I, I figured out what happened. Um, I think it was the fact that my new um, headphones uh, were causing feedback with the, uh, uh, the output from the computer. And so uh, this time I made sure that they're not only turned off, but they are in a room on the other side of the house in case they somehow want to get activated again. So... So I don't yeah, think that... there should be a problem. Good, good. But you're you're able to wear them today and hear everything properly, which is the big thing because you you were doing really well before. You had to juggle around, right? You had to like um put the headphones on and mute yourself to hear a question. <laughs> yeah. To, like, oh yeah. Just... I, that that was quite interesting. Excuse <laughs> <coughs> me. But you're a dab hand at it now. You're a. Oh, hi, Katrina. You're in the matrix. I am. It's breaking up super bad, Katarina. You're in the matrix. <laughs> I was wondering what that illusion was. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is it better now? My red bar is gone. Is ah, that's better? much better. It's yes. Better. Okay. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm on vacation this week, so uh, my internet is, you know, depending on, I don't know, the weather. I <laughs> no, I, but <laughs> but yeah. Thank you so much for making it, Rich. I hope you feel better at least, even, although you test positive. I hope you're uh, feeling I, better I, I, by I, now. Feel much better than I did last week. Last week was hell. Uh, this week, uh, I'm able to work and I don't have as much brain fog. Although, when I make a mistake now, it's so nice to be able to just blame it on COVID. <laughs> Given yeah, your position, that must be a relief. Sorry. Yeah, please continue. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> I wanted to say, you know, we go through it, so we should take advantage also. <laughs> <laughs> so where where are you on holiday right now? Uh, actually, so my family is visiting, you know, after years not seeing them because they are also in Europe. Um, they are visiting, so we went this week to the Hamptons. You know, I'm showing mm. them around a little bit. And um, next week will be for a few days on Rhode Island, and then they are already going back again. So. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Yeah, it's um, in the city. It's crazy hot. Like uh, it's like really warm, and it's um, yeah, it's almost unbearable to do things. <laughs> Unless you're like in a museum, but you know, they also don't want to get COVID to be able to go back. So, you know, yeah, okay, things are better. Well, I I don't know if you had seen the uh, the article that posted yesterday about how Nice, France, is now requiring people to wear masks again on public transportation. And my wife and I looked at that and we just laughed because that's where we got COVID, in Nice. And I think we, oh, were, wow, the only, yeah. we were the only ones wearing masks on public transportation and, uh, you know, in crowds. I mean, we were trying to be protected, but still, it wasn't sufficient. Oh, no, that's not very nice. <laughs> I was waiting sorry, for it. Sorry, I really sorry. was. <laughs> sorry about that. But also, I want to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't. I liked it. <laughs> uh, but it's frustrating when you're the one that was masking up and you still managed to catch it as well. Eh? It's, um, yeah, yeah it's frustrating. The masks can only do so much. So. Uh, it, it really, re it's a, it's a full team effort. You know, if not, if you're the only ones wearing masks, I mean, you're probably still going to pick it up as we've demonstrated. Uh, but yeah, um, people just need to realize that it's very dependent on the concentration of particles in the air. And if people aren't wearing masks, they are literally polluting the air. Hey, Doctor's contact. So, maybe you could work in some kind of like large polymer suit that we all completely wear that covers us completely from COVID. 
Maybe that could be uh, the next thing. That already, that already exists. In fact, I have one sitting in my office, right? About uh, uh, 15 feet from where I'm sitting. Yeah, I actually have one. Really? Um, it, I, I bought it. Um, it's basically um, a pseudo or quasi-isolation suit. It's not the same type that you would see at uh, biosafety labs, for example, where they're getting oxygen input from uh, an external tank or an external um, pumped source. But uh, there certainly is um, you know, an opportunity to be somewhat isolated. So the suit I have actually has fans built into it to maintain a higher positive pressure inside the suit so that particles cannot come into the suit and it has membranes all over the place. So yeah, they, it does exist. Um, in fact, uh, I got the idea from uh, Qantas Airlines because at the beginning of the COVID pandemic in their first class, they were handing out these you know, the, the type of suit that would basically just come down to your chest, but it would essentially isolate uh, your your head, which, of course, is where most of the uh, respiratory issues, of course, arise. Um, so, yeah, they, they those types of suits exist. And the, the one I got, it wasn't that expensive. It was about $600. Um, and of course, you know, it was uh, uh, manufactured overseas, which meant that it took a very long time for it to actually come to the U.S. <laughs> and is, is that one of those things? I don't know anything about these suits, but do they have like, levels to them then? Like one of them would help against the general things, another stronger one would help against radiation. Do they have their, their like, levels oh, no, no, like that? No, this is strictly uh, against microbes strictly against microbes so okay no this one this one doesn't protect against anything else so no i haven't gone the tony stark route <laughs> oh no <laughs> that would be so cool <laughs> but we need something to do tomorrow doctor right you know <laughs> oh this is true this is true ah oh. So I, I have been looking... Sorry, I'm sniffling a little bit, but the, the congestion is still hanging around. I can't get rid of it. No, not a problem. You just uh, relax and take your time. We're here to listen. And I've been reading your paper, and I guess what? I have a few questions for you as well. So Excellent. I love questions. <laughs> <laughs> um... Wait, were you able to get the slides okay? Um, Katrina? Were you able to get the slides that I had sent to Katrina? Yeah, um, yes. I'm going to just... Yes, we have the slides yeah. and I'm putting them up right now. Ah, great. I think earlier it didn't work when I was in... Um... Ah, okay. there you go. Can you then... Yep. Yep, it's in the... Yeah, we're starting in around four minutes. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And um, of course, special thanks to you, Rich, for this presentation is 
um, is really cool. I think everyone will enjoy it a lot. I had the chance to take a peek at it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it will be very exciting. And um, hi, Frank, how are you? Hi, Gilbert, how are you guys doing today? Hello, Katerina. Hello, hey. Rich. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, Science Society. Looking forward to your uh, sharing. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. For you, it's late right now, isn't it, Frank? I don't know what time it is for you right now. Uh, it's late, but um, uh, it, uh, it's okay. It's a, it's a pretty good time. Yeah. It's, Where, where are you located, Frank? I'm in the uh, Hong Kong and Beijing uh, uh, time zone, the east, oh, eastern okay. part of China. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this, this is a, a little bit late, not too bad. I uh, actually had to give a talk um, to the uh, Society of Polymer Science Japan uh, a couple weeks ago, and my talk started later than this. <laughs> so uh, late for me, early in the morning for them. So yeah, I, I appreciate you staying staying with us this late. Uh, not at all. It's uh, just really uh, you know a great honor and pleasure to to be uh, able to audit your lecture yeah. so yeah so the, regarding the uh time time zone it uh, especially due to you know the covid uh, years uh it's fine it's almost it's like you know how to court and become a, a math prize problem right how do you, how many time zones can you maximum <laughs> accommodate in one zoom meeting right? <laughs> yeah uh, I, I actually have been in some Zoom meetings where um, I would say New Zealand, Australia, China slash Japan slash Korea, uh, and then there were several people from Turkey and Iran, and then of course people from uh, West Eastern Europe and Western Europe and London. Um, so yeah, uh, there was a good representation of time zones. We we could we could just erase all the national barriers and just put down. You know what time zone are you in? <laughs> okay, I think we can start. Um, if that's okay with everyone, um, so. Um, okay. Yeah, welcome everyone to Science Society and um, a special welcome, of course, to Rich Spontek. Um, thank you so much for coming back. It's a great honor having you back again. And um, we are so happy that you're presenting your, this project today. But before we start, for people that maybe um, didn't uh, hear your first talk here with us um, we could um, 
I will give a short um, introduction overview. Um, Dr. Richard Spontag, he is a distinguished professor of chemical and biomedical engineering um, at um, North Carolina State University. He received his bachelor degree in chemical engineering with honors and high distinction from the Pennsylvania State University and was later awarded the PhD degree in chemical engineering from the University of California at Berkeley. And um, yeah, he continued then his research as a postdoc in material science at a University of Cambridge um, and condensated metaphysics um, at the Institute for Energy and Technology in Norway. Um, and then um, at some point he joined a corporate research division of the Procter and Gamble company. Um, and yeah, and then later on, he accepted a faculty position at the North Carolina State University, where um, he is still uh, until today. And um, he's also an amazing um, teacher and mentor. So um, yeah, we are very honored to having you here. And um, Jamie will like to ask you a um, general question before we go into your research, uh, if that's okay with you, Rich. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Katarina. Thank you, Doctor. And uh, as everybody who's listened before, we already got your origin story from you in the past. So I thought it would be interesting to maybe ask you something a little bit different. Um, since you're a, a second time comer. Um, now this question, um, it might have, uh, uh, might have the same thing, it might, it might be the same event or not, let's find out. Um, okay. Do you remember the most exciting time in your career when you discovered something? And can you remember the times you were most surprised with results against your expectations? That might be the same event, it might be too different. Thank you. Um, thank you for that. Though they are actually two very different events. Um, let me give the uh, surprised first, because this involved um, my first PhD student, uh, and at that time we were working on imaging very uh, complex polymer morphologies, and there was a, a new system that we were interested in. Uh, these were actually gels, and we knew that there was a structure to them, but we just, you know, we had to assume what it was rather than actually visualize it. Well, just so happened that I went on, um, I went to a conference in Russia at that time, and uh, two weeks later, I came back, and uh, he comes to my office and pops these uh, photos on my desk, and I said, oh, you've got some great images of uh, these polymer blends. And he just gave me this wily coyote smile uh, and said, nope. And I looked at him, I said, you didn't. And he said, yep. And uh, he had take, he had actually gotten images of the system that we didn't think we could image. And the reason why I didn't want him to do it was because I was afraid that putting the um, 
oil containing samples into a TEM would completely foul up and contaminate the microscope, which would have meant tens of thousands of dollars in repairs. And when he showed me the images, I was both excited, <laughs> surprised, and uh, really worried. <laughs> and it turned out that he was really good. Uh, he monitored everything. And it turned out that when we had the scope uh, serviced a few months later, the uh, service rep said that he had never seen a microscope so clean before. <laughs> so uh, even to this day, it surprises me. And whenever I see him, I always bring that up. Now, in terms of discovery, oh, that's an easy one, because I'm going to be talking to you about that today. Um, this, what I'm going to be showing to you was not pre-planned. It was a true discovery in the sense that we really didn't even believe our own eyes. Um, and uh, there's a part of me that looks back on the day when my students showed me the first results and I said, okay, how did you screw up the experiment? <laughs> and he, he went back at least two dozen times with different variations to show that what he had found was in fact not a fluke, it was reality. And then the onus was on us to explain what was happening. And that's my story for today, actually. So good transition. Thank you so very much for that question. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope that answered. <laughs> Oh, that, that that was fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that does lead us in perfectly. So thank you for setting me up properly. Okay, now we're all comfortable. We're all um, ready to listen. Please, Dr. Splantag, the, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I do um, recommend having the slides in front of you and put them into presentation mode uh, because there are some animations in there that uh, will help you. So and I'm going to be walking through this uh, so that you can, I'm seeing what hopefully you're seeing. Okay. So with that said, uh, I'm going to be talking today about broad spectrum self-disinfecting polymer surfaces. That is a mouthful. And so let me just point out the, the two primary uh, considerations in just that title. Broad spectrum. I'm not talking about antibacterials here. I'm talking about antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, basically antimicrobial. So we want to basically kill any kind of infectious microbe, any kind, doesn't matter what it is. Now, when you go to the store and you find antibacterials, well, yes, they're focused on bacteria. And that's very specific. You don't tend to find antivirals unless you're actually taking them orally. Then you can, you'll find antivirals, but you won't find an antiviral surface. And that's what I'm gonna be showing. Now, self-disinfecting, well, this basically says that this is not a point in time solution where you clean a surface and then wait for it to become recontaminated and then clean it again. We want to have a surface that basically cleans itself all the time continuously. Okay, so 
though that I want to set the stage with that so that you have an idea what we're talking about. Now, of course, I have to mention people who have contributed to this from NC State, from Creighton Corporation, from Boston University, uh, Procter and Gamble, Argonne National Lab. And you know the the question: Why do we need microbiocidals in general? Well, of course, we want to avoid spreading disease, and most people tend to think of uh, limiting this to healthcare, where you have personal protection equipment, whether they be masks or face shields or clothing, and those are absolutely fine uh, representations. But think about transportation. Um, my wife and I recently came back from a, a trip in Europe where, yes, we were touching everything during uh, our bouts around the cities, uh, handrails, kiosks, uh, seats. All of those are likely repositories of microbes that could potentially cause infection. Then you could start looking a little bit larger at just even the buildings that you're in. What about the desks that you might be sharing? What about the filtration membranes that are circulating air? What about simple doorknobs? So all of these are reasons where, or are potential venues where one could start to pick up um, uh, an infectious microbe. Now in the next slide, I hate to really show this because uh, it brings back so many, so many bad memories. This came out the end of November of 21. And it just kind of reminds us all how bad uh, things were going in terms of the pandemic. Well, things have still continued to get bad. These are uh, last week. And you can see that, you know, we've, broken the 6 million mark in terms of deaths worldwide, uh, over 500 million cases worldwide. And yes, that number actually continues to grow, but fortunately so does the number of vaccine doses that have been administered. So they're, they're, the problem is starting to be alleviated, but it is not disappearing. In fact, these were some shots that I got when Omicron first set its foot on the, the world stage. Um, and these were coming from New York. They were sounding the alarm saying that, you know, we've got this new mutation. Well, now we don't just have one Omicron mutation, we have five. Uh, and more than likely, as with all coronaviruses, it will continue to mutate. It is naive to think that it is a stagnant organism. It's one of the first things you learn in biology is that organisms will adapt to their environment. And so, uh, you know, we wind up having all these mutations. And unfortunately, with the newest mutations of Omicron, the transmissibility has gone up significantly. In fact, this is my own COVID test from yesterday. And yes, you see that I'm still testing positive for COVID. So is this the, the real scare? Well, it certainly has been a nightmare for the last couple of years, but it's not the only thing that we need to think about. 
I'm going to draw your attention to the next slide where you start to see lines like far greater risk than COVID. What on earth could be a far greater risk than COVID? And then all of a sudden you start to see this term antimicrobial resistance. Wait, does that mean that microbes are becoming resistant to whatever we use against them? The answer is yes. Now this came out in September of 2020. And that sounds like this is a new thing, but it's not. This war has been waged for quite a few years. And it starts off with what are called superbugs. These are bacteria that have developed resistance against pretty much all anti, um, um, antibiotics. So let's take a little look at that first before we start jumping back to the pandemic. So on the next slide, the initial motivation for the work I'm showing really deals with what are called hospital-acquired infections or nosocomial infections. When you're not feeling well, you go to the hospital. The hoped outcome is that you're going to feel better, but that's not a guarantee. You may find that you actually feel worse and you wind up picking up an infection in the hospital. One of the most notorious uh, bugs that you can pick up in the hospital is what's called C. difficile. C. difficile is uh, responsible for quite a few deaths annually in the U.S. alone. It is considered an urgent uh, microbe in terms of its uh, fatality by the CDC. It accounts for about a billion, that's billion with a B, uh, in terms of healthcare costs. And if you're an elderly person, and you wind up getting C. difficile in the hospital, chances are you're not going to walk out of the hospital. Uh, in fact, that's how my mother passed away. Uh, she went into the hospital for a diabetes-related infection. She picked up C. difficile, and within a week she, was, she had passed. So uh, what, what exactly should we be considering here? Well, let's take a look at some numbers. First of all, about one in 20 people who get who go into the hospital are going to pick up one of these infections. It might not be C. difficile, but there's a very high probability that you're going to get some kind of an infection. This accounts for at least 100,000 deaths per year in the U.S. alone. And if you start you know, converting from deaths to dollars, which I really hate to do, but it gives you a little bit of insight into why healthcare is so problematic in the US because we're looking at about 28 to 45 billion dollars per year that deal with these types of infections now i know that some of you are joining us from different time zones and i hope i did not uh, hit into someone's lunch or dinner with this. But these are some photos that are have been obtained from an infection caused by what's called methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. 
otherwise known as MRSA. And you may have heard of MRSA. It is a last, it is a bacterium that requires last resort antibiotics. And basically, if you contract MRSA, there is a high probability that you will wind up losing limb, if not your life. So to put this into perspective, if you start looking at the number of infections, cases, deaths due to antibiotic resistant bacteria and C. difficile, well, we're starting to approach a relatively large number in terms of deaths uh, that really go unreported because they are more or less considered the norm. They are the chronic problem. COVID was an acute problem, but the chronic problem isn't going away anytime soon. In fact, if you start looking at MRSA alone, you start to see that it is pretty much widespread. And yes, we're looking at the US, we're looking at Western Europe, we're looking at Australia, South America, South Africa, uh, and of course, all the other locations you see here. That's just MRSA. There are other uh, antibacterial resistant uh, bacteria out there, or antibiotic resistant bacteria out there. And the scariest part is that a study conducted in the UK indicated that by 2050, we're going to be looking at about 10 million cases of these antibiotic resistant microbes per year. That is actually going to outnumber all the cases of cancer. So this type of chronic problem is only getting worse and it's not a matter of taking the approach that we did with um, the pandemic, which is let's kick the pharmaceutical companies into high gear. Let's start cranking out new uh, antibiotics or antivirals or what have you, coming up with new vaccines. That strategy isn't going to continue to work. It's going to become inundated. And it does not account for mutation. It does not account for resistance because all of the drugs that are produced target. So they identify specific functionalities on membranes, for example, target those to basically cause disruption of whatever microbe you have. But if the microbe starts to develop a resistance against that, then the drug becomes ineffective. So how can we combat this? Well, you can see from this chart that there are lots of different ways to combat COVID as well as other microbes. And I am really going to be focusing on materials, uh, in particular, uh, the charged polymers, because they're quite uh, interesting. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, our discovery was very surprising. Now, this is again, one of those slides where it has an animation. So if you hit the button, you'll see that there's another slide embedded underneath, which is where you, know, you can start to see some uh, potential ways in which you can uh, kind of combat uh, microbes. You know, the easiest way you use uh, 
disinfecting wipes, chemicals basically, quaternary uh, compounds that will effectively kill what's ever on the surface. Or you can use radiation, UV radiation. Uh, but both of these have their own little problems. UV radiation, of course, can hurt healthy mammalian cells uh, and the uh, uh, various chemical compounds used as disinfectants. Well, they've been used so much during the pandemic that there are studies now indicating that they have adversely affected the environment. So then we can start talking about nanoparticles. Everybody loves to talk about metal nanoparticles or metal oxide nanoparticles, um, the copper, the silver, the zinc, uh, the titanium dioxide. And yes, these work. Um, but once again, they target bacteria only and uh, the bacteria can develop resistance to them. But even more importantly, nanoparticles like these can leach. And if they leach out and enter into the food chain, well, they can ultimately wind up in your brain. And so there is a considerable concern there. One can decorate the surface, um, and that does work uh, using polymers. Uh, but the problem there is that if the surface is abraded or cracks, uh, then you wind up with regions that are not protected and you can start to develop uh, microbial colonies. Uh, the last one uh, deals with uh, charged polymers. Most, well, I won't say most, I'll say all charged polymers that have been studied to date uh, have been cationic. So the, the reasoning for that is very simple. The charges on bacterial membranes are negative. And so uh, if you have a positive charge, it'll actually lure the uh, bacterium to the surface where you could have, uh, for example, another chemical function that could act as a spear and puncture the membrane and spill out the interior of the, the bacterium. Uh, it's called lysing. And um, yes, that works. It works. Um, a lot of times, though, these types of charged polymers because they're wet, uh, they have low tear strength. So they, they're not really mechanically robust. So we have been actually looking at two different strategies that activate um, when we want them to so that they can uh, basically inactivate microbes. Most importantly, they are nonspecific. So they do not target specific chemical functionalities. And now microbes cannot develop resistance. Okay, so that's a key point. Now, the one deals with what's called photodynamic inactivation. And this is basically where one adds in a photosensitive dye that in the presence of incoherent visible light and molecular oxygen, it can generate a reactive oxygen species, such as singlet oxygen. And this basically is highly, highly corrosive. Uh, and it will uh, pretty much destroy uh, anything organic near it. Uh, that includes microbes, it includes polymers for that matter. Um, 
but it is an approach that works. We've shown it, that it works, and it's actually quite useful, especially as a coding material. But that's not the one I'm going to talk about today. The one I'm going to talk about today is our discovery, and that deals with anionic inactivation. So what we're dealing with here is a single polymer whereby those, the blue regions of the, the polymer shown here, uh, they are hydrophobic. They provide mechanical properties and flexibility. The red is hydrophilic and um, basically houses sulfonic acid groups. This type of material activates in the presence of moisture. That's all. It does not need light. It does not need anything else. It just needs moisture. So allow me to spend just a moment telling you a little bit about this polymer because by in its own right, it's quite interesting. So in the next slide, and I can't tell you what slide number this is, but um, oh, this actually deals with the microbial targets first. So let me tell you what we're going after, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the polymer. So uh, I am not uh, a microbiologist, so I, I kind of learned this on the fly. I never thought I would actually be getting into this area, um, but it's been interesting, and I have certainly learned a lot, which is always a nice thing. So uh, in terms of bacteria, we have chosen what are called gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. Examples of the gram-positive bacteria are shown here, uh, whereas those that are gram-negative are shown here. Now, you might know or not know the difference between gram-positive and gram-negative, so here they are. And the thing to realize is that the gram-negative bacteria are more difficult to kill because they have an extra uh, external membrane. And so in general, the, the gram-negative bacteria are a bit more robust. Now you'll notice that I've highlighted the first letter in several of the, the bacteria in red to spell out escape. The escape series, uh, we, we're missing one of them. Uh, but the escape series of bacteria are the most common for producing uh, those hospital-acquired infections. So that's why we chose these. And you'll notice that uh, there are two there that are listed as resistant. Okay. But we're also interested, of course, in viruses. So you'll see more about that in a moment as well. Okay, so the next slide, I, it's entitled Charged Block Polymers. And I'll just quickly tell you what these polymers are because they're quite fascinating, really. So the first thing to realize is that they form nanostructures. And these nanostructures allow for uh, the, the ionic regions to become continuous. Now that's important because we want the ionic regions, the hydrophilic regions, to be continuous so that they can transport for us, okay? So this also shows that if you start off with a system where the ionic regions that appear light 
in this 3D TEM image um, are not connected, you could actually do a little bit of what we call solvent vapor annealing, which is similar to thermal annealing, where you heat something up for a period of time, but instead we keep the temperature at room temperature and we simply expose the polymer to solvent vapor, which softens up the polymer chains, reduces the glass transition temperature, allows more molecular mobility, and now the polymer can snap into an entirely different morphology over the course of just a few minutes. And this other morphology looks like this, where now the dark regions are those ionic rich regions, and you can see that they are pretty much continuous everywhere. So it's a very interesting material. Uh, we can actually teach it so that we know how, to, uh, how much it will swell. And these materials form hydrogels, not the same hydrogels that you might be familiar with where you chemically cross-link polymers, but in this case, they're physically cross-linked. So you could take these materials, you could redissolve them, recast them, reform them, use them again, and then repeat that whole process. So we try to produce materials that are much more eco-friendly uh, rather than just tossing uh, traditional hydrogels into a lab waste facility. Okay, so enough of the polymer science. Now let's get to what's actually happening here. So we're looking at a couple of polymers that have different degrees of sulfonation. One is 26 mole percent, the other is 52. So obviously the one with 52 is going to have uh, a much higher affinity for water. And we're, I'm on the slide that says pH jump mechanism. So we're going to now see what happens when we take these films that have bugs on them whatever bugs those might be, we're going to add water. I know it sounds funny, just add water. But when we do so, what happens is rather amazing. The surface becomes highly acidic. Why? Because the water gets into the polymer. It starts to allow for proton transfer from those sulfonic acid groups. The protons go to the surface. They drop the pH. Now let's consider just Staphylococcus aureus. We know from, other, from our own internal studies as elsewhere that below a certain pH, you'll kill uh, this bacterium. At higher pHs, it'll proliferate. So that demarcation occurs somewhere between about 1.5 to 2 on a pH scale. This is where we start. If you look at, uh, again, I just advanced uh, the animation. So you should now see two graphs, one on top of each other. The lower one tells you that the first cycle, we're looking at a surface pH in these materials of about 0.8. So this is incredibly dangerously, if you will, acidic. but this layer is very, very thin. It's less than 100 nanometers. So you could never feel it, but it's there. And if you start looking at how effective it is, it basically causes a six log unit reduction in 
the population of Staphylococcus aureus. Now, if you start to cycle this, you start to see that the pH starts to creep up because there are cations in phosphate buffered saline solution. But even when it has gone through five cycles, it still does a reasonably good job, even if the pH is uh, at about 1.4. So now on the next slide, under pathogen testing, you could see, for example, what happens with MRSA. If we look at a time-resolved study, we find that for the material that has been highly sulfonated to 52 mole percent, it reaches its minimum detection limit. That's a six log unit reduction in five minutes. And you can see that from the live dead assay as well. Now compare this to your disinfectants, the ones that you could pick up in the store, where it says, it can kill everything in two minutes, okay? And that's true, it can. It gets to the same, almost the same level that we can get to in two minutes. But the big difference is that you have to apply it every time you want to clean that surface. Whereas in the material I'm showing you, it's continuously killing to this level. If you start looking at bacteria, whether gram-positive or gram-negative, in five minutes, you'll see that they're all killed to the minimum detection limit, the MDL. So now we're looking at almost complete 99.9999 plus percent inactivation in five minutes of all these bacteria. To go to the next slide, where we start talking about the pandemic. And again, these, these numbers are now outdated, but it still gives you a pretty good indication that this was one of those once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation type of an event. But what I'm more interested in is how we can use these materials, because the SARS-CoV-2 virus can survive on plastic surfaces for 72 hours, it's three days, on cardboard for a day, even on copper for four hours. So we have an opportunity here to make an impact. And now we can start seeing how we can actually produce materials that prevent these types of uh, transferences, even though most of the transfer for uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is respiratory in nature. So you have nano droplets, suspended uh, water droplets from coughing, from sneezing, etc. But you can use these types of materials, for example, on face masks and face shields. So just to show that, yes, this polymer actually works really well against uh, viruses. Here are results from uh, three different viruses. VSV, which is related to rabies, influenza, 
and human adenovirus, which is uh, related to the, the novovirus. And you can see that in all cases, it is possible to get significant inactivation of the viruses. But the moment that I think many of you have been waiting for is how well does it work against SARS-CoV-2? Well, this was some work that was done in collaboration with the National um, Emerging Infectious Disease Laboratory, NEEDLE, at Boston University. And it also shows that after five minutes, there's a considerable reduction in uh, the, the survivability of the viruses. And it's much, much better than what you could get from using even copper. Um, after 30 minutes, uh, we can get to extremely high levels of inactivation. So that that's comforting because it tells us that uh, this material can, in fact, be used against viruses. Well, we didn't, uh, we couldn't always be checking for SARS-CoV-2, so we went to a human coronavirus surrogate, which is human coronavirus 229 echo strain. And this is basically the strain of coronavirus that gives you a common cold. So it's safer to work with in a BSL-2 facility, the SARS-CoV-2 requires at least a BSL-3 facility. And you can see here that in all cases, um, we're looking at, you know, within 20 minutes, uh, the, the uh, virus is completely killed down to minimum detection. Well, that took us back to the pandemic, but is that the end of the story? No, no, because that uh, chronic problem still is around us. So what about more aggressive pathogens? And yes, there are more aggressive pathogens than SARS-CoV-2 virus. So if we go to the CDC website, you start to see the different types of threat levels and what types of bugs are responsible for those types of threats. And we're marching up, we've gone from concerning to serious. MRSA is considered uh, serious. And the other one that we I showed you results for, VRE, is also considered serious. But now we start to get back to C. difficile. Uh, and now we're looking at, you know, between C. difficile and MRSA, you're looking at about 2.7, about $3 billion alone in healthcare costs. That's just for two types of infections. So... Will the materials I showed you work against C. difficile? Well, C. difficile is different because C. difficile forms a spore. And that spore basically means that it has a protective wall. So now it becomes resistant to high temperature disinfection. It's even resistant to UV light and to ethanol and bleach. <coughs> Excuse me. So we did check, we did produce uh, results from C. difficile and adhered to all the proper uh, laboratory conditions for it because it is a, a bit different. It's an anaerobic bacterium. But this is what we see. So there are two different states for C. difficile. One is vegetative where it is uh, contagious and the other one is the spore state. 
where it can stay pretty much uh, in suspended animation for months. So we looked at two different types of um, C. difficile. Uh, the original one uh, discovered in 1982 and another hypervirulent strain uh, that was identified in 2006. In terms of the vegetative state, within five minutes, uh, once again, we could kill uh, everything down to not six orders of magnitude, but closer to uh, just over seven orders of magnitude. So uh, considerable, considerable, uh, you know, uh, inactivation. The spore state was a challenge. Uh, we started to see evidence of inactivation after about 20 minutes. Um, but it, we don't get to uh, a very high level of inactivation until about an hour. So for the vegetative cells, we could actually get to 99.99% in just one minute. So very, very quick. For the spores, we can get to about 90% inactivation in 60 minutes. But if we model this, it basically says that if we tack on another 30 minutes, we might be getting down to that same level of 99.9 plus percent. So, with that, um, on my penultimate slide here, uh, basically say, pointing out that these types of bacteria and viruses and other microbes, I didn't talk about fungi here, but those are also a threat. Uh, and it turns out that the polymer I showed you works quite well against black mold, which uh, especially in the New York area, that is, uh, and also uh, a lot of, um, uh, shore areas, uh, coastal areas, black mold is of considerable concern. And so uh, this material actually works quite well against it. Uh, the whole point is that it produces a pH jump in the presence of water. And the exposure times are very, very short, very, very effective. I didn't point this out, but it, these materials are actually rechargeable so that uh, if cations do bind to those sulfonic acid sites, you could expose the material to an aqueous acid and over a concentration dependent period of time, uh, which could be as short as just five minutes, you could fully recharge the material so that they become as good as they were before. So this was, um, uh, headline that I found from 2016 indicating the first superbug identified in the U.S. Um, but this has been, these types of superbugs, this chronic problem has been around for a much longer period of time. Now, the material I showed you today uh, is quite effective against uh, viruses such as SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, for that reason, last year, uh, it received EPA emergency approval so that it could be used uh, to counter the pandemic. And the reason why this was important is because this now allowed Delta Airlines to start using this material in its terminals. 
So if you fly uh, Delta and you use a ticket counter or a ticket kiosk and you touch it, uh, you're actually touching this polymer and it is continuously disinfecting your fingers. Um, the other aspect, and I can't stress this enough, is that the way that this polymer kills is nonspecific. So microbes cannot develop a resistance to it. And I'm uh, a true nerd at heart. And so uh, when I think of resistance, uh, while well, there's only one person who comes to mind, and that is Locutus. Uh, so uh, in terms of these materials from a microbial standpoint, resistance is indeed futile. So with that, uh, I thank you so very much for the time you've given me to share our results with you. Uh, I would be delighted to answer any questions either now or if you'd like to send me an email, I'm happy to, uh, to answer any questions you might have. So thank you very much for this time. Wow, uh, Dr. Spontak, thank you so, so much for this uh, talk. There's been very wonderful and interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of people on stage and in the audience have questions right now. Um, and so let me see, um, Jamie, Gilbert, Katerina, Frank, anybody has any questions? And we have someone new on the stage. Hi. Yeah, I'm out. Jamie, do you have any questions? Indeed, I do. <clears throat> um, first of all, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Spontag, um, I'd please like to offer my deep condolences for your loss, and thank you for sharing that with us here. Um, and um, so, yeah, and um, and it's so meaningful that you've actually been working on such a dangerous problem. And because I'm in the UK and we've heard a lot about that as well. Um, mm -hmm. So that being said, I'm going to begin my uh, questions with, um, is, is there actually some real plans at the moment to have this be picked up in hospitals? I, I'm, I'm understanding right that this is going to like coat surfaces and things. Yeah. Yes. So uh, we have patented this uh, discovery. And uh, I think you can appreciate now why I was so surprised <laughs> when uh, we saw the initial results, because um, traditional wisdom said that the polymer had to be cationic. Uh, no one had ever um, suspected that a, an anionic polymer could be used. And in fact, I even wrote to one of my dear colleagues who is an expert in biomaterials and I explained the situation and I loved his uh, response. It was just two words, patented. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it was a surprise for us, but now the question becomes, how does it move forward? So we have licensed this technology to this is the ironic part, to the company that manufactures it. So we were using the same material for vastly different purposes. Uh, we've used the material to create uh, electroactive media. We have used that polymer to make solar cells. We have used it 
to make gas separation membranes, although I didn't talk about that during my last talk. Uh, we have now recently filed a patent where we can show that we can uh, make uh, lithium-ion batteries that can retain 100% efficiency and 76% capacity after 1,000 hours, uh, or 1,000 cycles rather, which uh, amounts to about four years of service. Uh, so the material itself has been incredibly valuable because it forms these nanoscale hydrophilic channels. That's really important. It is one of the very first polymers where you can see the importance of how this uh, that charged mid-block plays a role. So now it's basically up to Craton Corporation how it will be distributed. And I know that they have been in discussions with hospitals. In fact, uh, even when we first made the discovery, we were being contacted by Mass Massachusetts General Hospital um, uh, about how we could apply this as a uh, coating onto a surface. It turns out that the best way of doing this is what's called a peel and stick, where you basically have um, an adhesive onto a non-woven backing and then put this polymer on top of it. And that works really well. So you just peel off the adhesive, stick it onto the surface, and away you go. And you could do this on walls. Um, it's not... Uh, as simple as wallpaper, but it's not that much more difficult. Um, and the nice thing is that our current results indicate that even if you apply disinfectants to it, uh, you can still recharge it and it will get back to its full efficacy. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, Craton will take this into all the markets where it needs to go. Um, I think the thing that complicates matters a little bit is that Craton was just bought out by a company in South Korea. And so I don't know what the long-term strategy is for that parent company now. Um, but, you know, this, this material has tremendous uh, potential. And one of the reasons why I was so personally excited about this was that it can be used in economically uh, hard-hit areas. So you could start thinking about even mobile hospitals uh, having this kind of polymer coated onto surfaces. Um, it's actually, we've, we could take this material, dissolve it in a, in a solvent and spray it onto a surface and it works. It works quite well. Um, so I think that, you know, from my standpoint, I would really like this to be used, you know, not just in our hospitals in, you know, uh, the more industrialized nations. I would like to see it used in developing countries where, you know, they still, you know, there's still issues associated with Ebola, for example. Um, one of my goals this year 
is to see whether or not we can kill a number of those types of hemorrhagic fever causing um, microbes with this material. So yeah, it's, it still has a lot of potential uh, in terms of where it can go. Um, but how it gets there is not exactly in my hands anymore. Does that make sense? Oh, most definitely. And um, thank you very much for answering. That's a, a, it's a, it's a jaw-dropping discovery, and I just I, I mentioned for it to be everywhere right now. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll yield the floor, but um, if there's any time, I'll have more questions later. Thank you, Doctor. Well, that was your, your, your description is actually quite right. Jaw-dropping is, is the right description for that because um, it took us a long time to believe our own results. And when we did the first COVID tests, uh, we actually had two other labs follow up on that to make sure that we weren't getting spurious results. And uh, the other labs showed almost identical results. In fact, even slightly better results than than the one that the results we got from Boston University. So yeah, uh, it was uh, it was quite eye-opening. And when we saw that we could now also kill C. difficile, uh, that was just uh, mind-boggling um, because even our collaborator who is an expert with C. difficile, she said she had never seen anything kill the spore form so quickly. And I was like, quickly, that took an hour. And she said, you don't understand. The spore form of C. difficile is extremely difficult to kill. And so, uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that this can make it into hospitals um, and also nursing homes. Uh, it's another place where these microbes can really have a major deleterious effect against uh, you know the seniors who are you know more or less confined to those facilities. Oh wow! Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Katarina. Yeah, thank you so much. This is uh, this is really amazing, and um, I I the whole time I was wondering because it is really so effective and and so. You know the results are really um, so astonishing. Would there be a way to package this and deliver it in an organism in a body, so that it would only be released? Like, is there any work in the future for that? You know, for antibiotic resistance. Yeah, you, you kind of hit on the uh, the Achilles heel <laughs> because. <clears throat> These, this material is cytotoxic. So it, it will kill live mammalian cells just as easily as it will kill bacteria and viruses. Um, we checked on that. It's not as fast, uh, but one of the first things that we thought of for using this, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, for wound dressing, and we thought, oh, this is perfect because you don't need light. You don't need any kind of special stimulation. All you need is natural water, which occurs, you know, 
either uh, from the wound itself or from irrigation. But no, we found that um, because it forms that thin acidic layer, it still kills um, cells, healthy cells. Uh, the other thing that you kind of have to think about a little bit is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the composition of the polymer. It has T-butyl styrene and blocks, and those are really important because they act as physical crosslinks. So that's why when this material soaks up water and it can, under the right conditions, it can soak up almost a thousand percent water. So it becomes ultra absorbent, um, but it still stays intact. And that's because you have these physical crosslinks. So when I said it behaves like a hydrogel, it does, uh, but it's not chemically crosslinked, it's physically crosslinked. Well, uh, styrene, unfortunately, is one of those chemical compounds that the FDA has not approved for internal use. And the reason for that is because when you synthesize a, a polystyrene, um, you always invariably have some styrene monomer or styrene oligomer left. And that could easily get into the bloodstream which styrene having that lovely fennel ring on it uh, can produce cancer. So there is, uh, at least in the US, there is, uh, you know, a major dislike of putting polystyrene in the body. Now, in other countries, it's actually allowed. Uh, I was surprised to learn that, I believe it's in Japan, uh, you can, in fact, put polystyrene in the body, but not in the U.S. currently. Um, it's possible to switch that out to a different polymer, uh, but now you're also talking about all of the development and capital costs associated with changing the polymerization process. That's not trivial. Uh, that could be millions, tens of millions of dollars. Um, so I think that <clears throat> as of now, um, I think all of the intentions for this polymer are external to the body. Um, but, you know, a person once asked me, you know, if I'm suffering from a MRSA infection, um, you know, could I get this material because it could kill the MRSA? And I said, yeah, but it's also gonna kill your healthy cells. And he said, I would rather lose some cells than lose my leg. And it, it, that's a fair point. Um, but, you know, I, I can't, <laughs> I cannot authorize that kind of use. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it really depends. There, there are some situations where it could still potentially be used uh, directly uh, in conjunction with the body, but you know, uh, all of the uh, potential issues uh, must be considered. So, but it's a good question. I, I've been asked that question before about, you know, using it in the body and I'm very reluctant to say even a potential yes. Uh, especially since uh, this is um, 
driven, this is a surface driven phenomenon. So, um, you know, if you had this uh, introduced into the body, basically you would have a, uh, a sphere uh, with a highly acidic surface. And I'm not sure exactly uh, what the benefit would be there. But again, it's a, there's a chemical um, uh, concern that has to be addressed before that could happen. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer. I, I was thinking of um, that the guest speaker here from Japan last week where he has this micro robot that he can program uh, with DNA and then have one type of light pack up stuff and then uh, you'd be like to deliver um, like compounds. Um, but yeah, then you have the light issue and to target it. Yeah, with these materials, you don't have, you don't need light, right? All you need is water. Yeah, yeah, that's much better. Yeah, thank you. I see Frank have a question. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, uh, Doctor. This is uh, fascinating. Thanks for sharing. That's an exciting finding. And, uh, you know, I already can see that uh, the, with the huge, uh, you know, potential, you know, huge impact on the, you know, especially the uh, during these uh, after this affliction of uh, pandemic years and stuff. Yeah, so this is really interesting, especially it's in the nano science. Uh, I'm also I worked with a polymer on the uh, more um, higher level. It's more engineering uh, with 3D mm -hmm. printing, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So, but I do have a question uh, re related to the uh, the slides of the charged block uh, polymers. I just try to understand better of what type of this 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 type of uh, block polymer. And as I understand, the uh, itself already uh, with uh, 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 you know the uh, ABA type of. Uh, 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 build in and so you can so I, I so so I, I do see a word in this slide that you uh, it's a, uh, irreversible is that a, a, a typo or because by from earlier uh, converse and you're answering a uh, Katarina question that the, uh, the difference between chemical versus f physical um, in my mind um, if I'm correct that the uh, uh, correct me uh, uh, if I'm wrong. That uh, the physical ones is you can still reuse, reuse right. instead of like a, a rubber, you, you become uh, fixed. Right. Which slide are you referring to? Uh, charge uh, block polymers. Okay. Let me, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me. Uh, uh... Oh. 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 Okay. So. Typically, typically uh, with block polymers, uh, you can change from one morphology to another if they're equilibrium morphologies. Okay, so uh, a good example of that is um, if you don't have a charge and you're dealing with an AB or an ABA uh, type block polymer. And these will spontaneously form into a number of different morphologies, which I didn't get into in this presentation. But um, but those are equilibrium morphologies. And so you can easily switch from one to another by crossing 
what are called order order transitions. And so you can go from spheres to cylinders, cylinders to uh, gyroid, gyroid to lamellae. It's, that's all very doable and it's been shown ad nauseum times. No, what this material does is if you start off with that micellar morphology that uh, is in that slide and it's rotating, it's a three-dimensional TEM image. If you take that and you expose it to uh, a polar solvent like water, okay, what will happen is you'll have a buildup in osmotic pressure within those hydrophilic channels and it will undergo a transition to a different morphology. That morphology is very disordered. Um, there's no long range order to it, but the ionic channels become continuous. That transition is irreversible. That is, you cannot now just take water away and it will go back. It will, that new morphology stays. Now you can redissolve the polymer, but I'm just saying that that transition is irreversible. Not the fact that you can just redissolve the polymer and reuse it. Okay. Do you see the distinction there? I I see. I see. I got okay. Okay. So I I, I yeah, you're I, absolutely yeah. right though, because that's one of the beautiful things about these types of materials, this by the way is a pentablock. So it has five blocks to it. And the beautiful thing about these types of materials is that they are recyclable, they're reusable and reprocessable. So it gets all those little re's in there, which makes it uh, more, much more of an eco-friendly type material. So you're absolutely right about that. But this irreversible only refers to the transition itself. I see. This is this is a really great, great uh, material. Uh, really, great uh, fun as well. Yeah. And if you if you send me an email, I'll be happy to send you uh, a full listing. We have probably uh, I want to say about thirty papers out on this material. Uh, I'd be happy to send you the list if you're interested in learning more about it. Yes, yes, I'll I'll do. Yeah, really appreciate that. I'll I'll shoot an email uh, to you. So, yeah, pleasure. yeah. So so uh, quickly, uh, if I may, uh, additional. So as you were mentioned, uh, explaining earlier, uh, I'm trying to get a. Uh, so you can you can so this polymer can be in a spray form. So what is the uh, what is the chain size that the the uh, the molecular weight? I mean, how long is uh, you can? Yeah, uh, or you long. can uh, develop into like fibers as well, long chain. Or what morphology is mo uh, most preferred? Yeah, fibers are going to be problematic. Um, so here here are some of the things that you you need to think about. One, uh, molecular weight total is on the in the ballpark of about 80,000 Daltons, 80,000 grams per mole. So it's not a high molecular weight material. Um, the, the end blocks are actually just below uh, the critical 
uh, chain length of entanglement for T-butyl styrene. So you have to be a bit careful with this material. It's not as mechanically stable as I would like. I would actually, I've taken this material, I've added in homopolymer to try to strengthen the end blocks a little bit. Um, but so it's on the relatively lower side, which is good from a viscosity standpoint, because you can actually work at surprisingly high uh, solution concentrations before it starts to gel. Um, but in terms of fibers, uh, the sulfonic, if you're thinking of uh, fiber spinning from, uh, you know, using uh, conventional thermal melt spinning, uh, you're going to have real problems because the sulfonic acid group will degrade. Uh, it starts to degrade at about 60 to 70 degrees centigrade. So from a melt spinning process standpoint, no, this material cannot be spun into fibers. We have spun it into fibers using electrospinning at room temperature. That works. Uh, but if you're familiar with electrospinning, you're not going to get much out. <laughs> so uh, the one thing that we have considered is uh, electrospinning on top of um, you know, a fibrous support so that you basically just fill in the, the pores. Uh, but, you know, it's again, it's not something that you could think about as large scale. Um, this is actually much better suited towards uh, solution casting, solution spraying. I see. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, I think the people I'll, I'll I'll refrain. You know, my questions. I'll, I'll leave. Uh, have others to uh, ask more questions. But I do have. Uh, so if if we still have more time, I really I would really appreciate you explain, sure. repeat, uh, 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 spend a little bit more time on the explaining the morphology. I mean, you, I missed some of your words description as you go through this uh, uh, this particular slides. How, how you know the A B. But but may, I I can wait for you know later. Uh, if there's uh, more time uh, 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 available. Yeah, um, we have a good good friend on stage, um, and I kind of wanted them to get their um, question in um, just because, you know, we don't know how long um, Dr. Spontak has. Um, good friend, hi. I am not planning on going anywhere. I yeah, I want to say uh, all the best to Dr. Spontak. Very interesting one. Oh, thank you, Dr. Spontek. Yeah. I like the music there, too. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Uh, he has some background noise. He usually asks great questions, but I know he, he has some background noise today. Good. Can you ask a question really quick? Sure. Yeah, I was just saying that the question that I was willing to ask, Katrina already asked, so I'm just thanking Dr. For is this wonderful, wonderful work, and I can spend a week, you know, <laughs> talking to people about it. So great learning for me. Thank you. Oh, okay, okay. I think they're saying that the question's already been asked. Okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I, 
having a hard time uh, making out uh, the comment over the music, uh, but the music actually was quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, Gilbert, you're um, the only one who hasn't asked yet. I want to know if you have any questions. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, clearly. Yes. Perfect, perfect. Thank you very much, doctor, for this great, great topic. It's an excellent topic. Um, I just had one question about the, the polymer itself. Um, so uh, is there a way to actually make it safer for external use as well? Because, um, I mean, if, if we if we plan on using it on surfaces, on various different types of surfaces, or in specific places that, that where it's effective, uh, there's no guarantee that we can actually um, um, stop it from entering the body because, you, you know, uh, particles, they're everywhere and, and people are touching everything all the time. So uh, how, how can we actually make it safer for external use and, and prevent it from actually entering the body? That's, that's a, a, an excellent question. So we have uh, been talking with people who make face masks to try to apply this as a coating on the face mask. Uh, it can be easily applied to face shields. So basically bringing it closer to those uh, portals to the body uh, that would be the, the, the entrance for infective microbes. So you, you have to start thinking about, of course, the nose, the mouth, the eyes, the ears. Uh, all of these are entry routes. And so if we can find, you know, if we can basically manufacture PPE that has this polymer on it uh, and then use the PPE to basically bring our polymer closer to those entry uh, ways, then I think it becomes more effective in combating um, the, uh, the, the infection, uh, basically trying to prevent the infection from occurring in the first point. So it's a, it's a good question. And actually, um, we have been uh, working with colleagues over at Duke University. They have um, built uh, essentially uh, a chamber that emulates <laughs> uh, a cough or sneeze. And the idea is to use um, laser interferometry to measure particle size uh, as a function of distance and of speed. And so uh, that gives us a better indication of, you know, what should we be doing in terms of modifying PPE? so that it can be more effective uh, at preventing uh, the risk of infection. So I would say we, we don't necessarily have to do anything to the polymer itself, um, other than ensuring that it doesn't delaminate from whatever the, the uh, underlying polymer substrate is. So, most face masks, for example, are made from polypropylene, uh, which means that if we want to put this polymer on polypropylene, we have to make sure 
that it won't come off easily. And there are ways, chemically, there are ways to improve that adhesion. Uh, but that's the type of problem that, you know, develops. It's not so much in modifying the, our polymer per se, it's in modifying its adhesion to other polymers that are used in PPE. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. Thank you for the question. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Spontak, uh, for <laughs> answering all of our questions. Um, so I just had uh, one more uh, question for you, um, and I think maybe a couple more people, Jamie and Frank had maybe one or uh, one each more that we could ask. But um, for my question, I wanted to ask, because I love that you mentioned the use in uh, low-income countries and lick mix um, around the world. Um, and you were talking about the company that has taken over the production. Um, so right now, my biggest concern, if you're you know talking about use of it in in, in in, uh, licks and mix around expensive is it to create and how expensive is it to maybe sell to these countries that might really need it um, um, health care um, and if there is some sort of health care facility it's not safe it's not you know sterile it's not you know cleaning up so yeah so how how much how much does it cost to create and is it really difficult like does it put a burden on any kind of infrastructure you know what i mean like does it really fit into the low income country kind of budget and um infrastructure uh i'm going to answer that question on several levels um the first one is uh, the polymer itself and how expensive it is. Um, as far as polymers go, it's not as cheap as, for example, polyethylene or polypropylene. Okay, those are incredibly cheap. That's why you get them all the time when you go to the supermarket. Um, but it, this isn't as expensive as some of the, the more high-performance engineering polymers. So I would say that the cost is not excessively high, but the good thing is you don't need much. So you don't need to have a block of this material. If you have a film that is a hundred microns thick, it will work. So that's kind of the beauty of it. Uh, you don't need to have much of it. So that's going to reduce the cost tremendously. Okay, it be, right now the process is industrialized. It is a commercially available polymer. Um, you can look it up, it's called Biaxam, B-I-A-X-A-M. Uh, and you'll see Craton's uh, you know, website that says it's a wonderful thing for killing microbes. <laughs> um, but it's more a matter of how they want to distribute it. Um, and I know that they actually have quite a, a large warehouse of this material. And again, uh, it show, it's typically sold in sheet form. Uh, so the sheets themselves um, 
are a bit on the thicker side so that they can be handled, but they can be redissolved and made into thinner uh, coatings if necessary. So, you know, I think that to answer your, the first part of your question, yes, um, I think that it could be used in economically uh, hard hit areas without introducing a substantially unnecessary uh, burden on, on the healthcare system. Um, that was the intention. Uh, we wanted something that we thought would be relatively inexpensive and accessible. Uh, how that pans out from an industrial standpoint, I, I can't say. I don't have any, any say in that whatsoever. Now, the second level to answering your question, uh, and I, I personally find this one to be uh, the most uh, intriguing, is that we've identified a brand new mechanism for an antimicrobial. It, prior to our work, no one had ever used an anionic polymer for this purpose. We have since the polymers that could potentially be used uh, as an anionic material, and we have that they work. So our mechanism, and that's where I come in as a polymer scientist, I look for mechanisms, I look for generality, you know, not just, will it work for just one material? No, 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 I want to find the works there so I can transplant it to different places. And so now I have a mechanism that I can, and I have already submitted proposals that could potentially take uh, other cheap polymers, very, very cheap polymers, and functionalize them so that they could have the same um, uh, potential the same property as these I've talked about. So from my standpoint as a polymer scientist, knowing this mechanism allows me to now expand it and to see how it could be used in an even more ubiquitous way. So, so that's where I'm coming from. And I really, um, I mean, my, you know, from my last talk, you, I hope you got the sense that I really care about uh, cleaning up CO2 from the environment. Uh, this is my other uh, holy grail, which is trying to make the world uh, a safer place in terms of, you know, fighting microbes. So, I mean, these... If, if I'm Don Quixote, I've got two lances. Uh, these are the two areas that I have particularly decided to specialize in. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate you um, talking about, you know, all the, the, the layers that go into it. Um, yeah, and yes, your passion does come through. And it's always nice when you meet a scientist that is very passionate about what they do beyond just the science of it, but also how it applies to the human population. Um, so thank you so much for that. Uh, so we have uh, someone new on stage, Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Um, do you have any specific questions? 
Hello, yes. Um, yeah, Brandon has a lot of uh, uh, good questions in the chat. So, yeah, I think I, I thought probably great. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't have my chat up. Uh, how do I get to chat on? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you don't worry about it. We we will handle that for oh. you. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why Frank brought, you know, Brandon. So don't worry about that. Um, Brandon, please ask your question. Thank you. I appreciate it. And Frank, thank you for having me on stage. Um, let's see. So I had a variety of questions. I don't know um, if I should get to all of these. Um, 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 like I, I was some curious. of your questions were asked. I think Katarina asked the one about, you know, the skin. Um, and some of the people might have asked uh, some, of, some of the questions <laughs> that you were talking about. But maybe start with one for now. Okay, sure. Um, so on the idea of, well, there's two that kind of go hand in hand. I, you know, it seems as if uh, you were saying that um, this this isn't intended for ingestion. Um, and there are, you know, concerns about that. And so then the question that I have is, um, you know, I mean, as I'm sure that uh, most of us are aware, uh, when you smell something uh, physically, um, the particle has actually touched your nose. And so, um, you know, there's a variety of, uh, there's a, a small degree that can essentially detach. And I know that you mentioned an, an adhesive. And so when you said adhesive, I thought that this would be um, applied on one side. And so in my mind, um, that means that there is still a width of which it does not have this adhesive. And I'm wondering, um, I can imagine potential uh, scenarios like we just went through a pandemic and um, we had a variety of uh, you could say PPE that was not only worn by uh, professionals who were properly trained but also by um, by individuals who you know um, <laughs> they were not properly trained uh, and so I think of uh, a scenario where um, you know this could potentially uh, it, 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 it could evolve where uh, this application is used in one setting and then it's pushed towards the public and then perhaps, um, you know, um, people were with PPE wearing masks multiple days, um, just throwing it around in their car or whatever, you know, people can scratch the thing, etc. And so I'm wondering, um, potentially, you know, if it does get ingested, what may result? And so I'm trying to counter, um, I think that there are some potentially fantastic applications here. And I'm also trying to counterweigh that on potential risks. And so um, I'm sorry if that was too all over the place, but um, no, I, 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 am I, curious. I followed you and uh, I, I, I assure you that uh, I devil's advocate so many times with this material. Uh, because we do not want to introduce necessary risk to any user. Uh, that that would be the farthest thing from our intention. Uh, so, um, yes, if you if you want to get straight to the bottom line of, gee, what if some you know kid uh, decides to take a nibble out of um, uh, one of the coatings, you know, that's on a, a Delta plane, for example. Uh, and, and we have considered that, by the way, uh, when we were talking with Delta, um, you know, we even asked the question, is there a chance that a, a child could lick uh, this material from, uh, you know, an armrest or uh, actually take a little bite out of it from the uh, from a, a coated seat? Um, and yeah, these these are possibilities. Uh, now, what effect would it have? Probably nothing. 
us, there would be so little of it. Um, I mean, you can ingest a piece of I recommend this, by the way. Please don't get the wrong impression. I'm not saying that you should go out and start, you know, chewing on polystyrene. But people have ingested polystyrene, whether it's from a styrofoam cup uh, or any any kind of, you know, children have, you know, in addition to putting things up their nose, I'm sure that they have swallowed uh, polystyrene at some point in their life. Uh, it's just, it's a very, very common polymer. Um, and so nothing really is going to happen. Um, the reason why we are particularly careful about internal use is in this long term, uh, then there is the potential for since it is uh, a monomer is is known to be cancer causing, there is the potential that it could in, uh, be cancer causing in oligomeric form, probably not in polymer form. But when you we still have some leftover monomer and some oligomer short chain polymers. Uh, that you, that could come out. Um, and so it, it's not, if it happened once or twice or half dozen times or even more, uh, it may have absolutely zero effect. It would be basically excreted. You know, there would be no uh, harmful ramifications. If it were used continuously, that's a different story. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to any with um, any kind of medical treatment uh, to the body, I am not a physician. I am not qualified to make those types of uh, decisions. I am extremely conservative. And so I you know, simply say that I cannot recommend the use for internal purposes, but it doesn't in my mind, at least. Uh, and again, I have no uh, toxicological um, data to support this, but in my mind, I don't see where having, uh, you know, someone ingesting, uh, um, you know, in a discrete number of times where that would cause a significant and long-term problem. But again, I have to, you know, always put a disclaimer. I don't know for sure. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, if I may, the only um, follow-up uh, points that I, I um, take into consideration is, and, and I'm a layman, so, you know, I, I read some things and I, I, I don't know exactly. So <laughs> um, I have heard over the years that there is something called a shift space, and it may be the case that um, certain, you know, man-made particles that we did not evolve with may not be so easily excreted through, um, oh, yeah. you know, through our feces and urine. Um, perhaps uh, sweating may help out in those instances. But um, so that's kind of a concern I have is I would want to, you know, know how... Um, this particular chemical structure relates to kind of um, natural structures and if it can form that I think it's called shift base and also you mentioned the nanoparticle angle and so I'm sitting here thinking you know persistent plus potential nanoparticle um, you know getting in 
uh, to cells or perhaps disrupting blood-brain barrier or who knows what getting into the brain and alternative mechanisms. Um, might it be the case that this is, I don't know, like I also think of kind of like very low dose, but perhaps potentially staying. And then you mentioned like a persistent action and I'm like, ooh, that kind of sounds like a, I don't know, alpha particle like uh, uh, decay that maybe it seems to do nothing um, for X amount of years and then perhaps cancer shows up at some point. So just some further thoughts. Thank you. No, that's, that's, that's really a good point. Uh, and that's, <laughs> you actually, why we opted to avoid nanoparticles for exactly that reason. We don't want that to happen. And the, the thing is we don't produce them uh, in nanoparticle form. Uh, they are produced strictly in terms of our coatings on other substrates, but they don't form nanoparticles. So uh, these types of materials, they won't, within uh, the body, they simply won't uh, start to form nanoparticles on their own. Uh, so I would say the chance of them getting into cells would be extremely, extremely low unless you particularly put them in contact uh, with cells that could be damaged and don't know exactly how that would proceed. Uh, but I can't imagine, you know, if you ingested this, uh, I don't see any way that it would make its way out of the digestive system um, because after all, they are plastics. The, uh, the, the nanoparticles, those are metal or metal oxide, and they can easily, uh, because they're inherently hydrophilic, they can inherently get into cells. Uh, that's very well known. Um, but, you know, I don't think that's so much of an issue for this polymer, uh, especially since it doesn't particle form. We're not trying to produce my cells, for example. We want it actually as a bulk film. So, yeah, but good, your point is well taken. I, I don't think this is going to be one of those cases where, uh, you know, if you ingest it, it'll come back to bite you, uh, you know, five, 10 years into the future. I just don't see that happening, uh, but again, not medically qualified, so I'll have to, you know, recognize my limitations on that one. Thank you for the clarification. Thank you. I must have, uh, I must have misheard regarding the nanoparticles. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Swanta, uh, for answering all these questions. Uh, I think maybe we could take one or two more questions. Yeah, Frank has a question. Jamie, did you have a question as well? Jamie? I, yes, I did, but I'm totally happy letting Frank go first and then I'll okay. Thank you. All right. Well, Frank, please ask one question and then Jamie can ask another one. Sure. Uh, thanks. Uh, Sarah and Jamie. The, uh, so, quick question uh, regarding the, uh, uh, the percentage of uh, sulfation. Uh, the, is uh, 52 the <laughs> somehow? Uh, 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 is there a specific reason that uh, uh, so is it the maximum that you can do or no, is it uh, what if you go higher it is possible to go higher and we have uh, so 
commercially, that's the highest. Um, the 52 mole percent to two equivalents. Um, so commercially, it's available at one, 1 1.5 and two equivalents, six, 37 and 52 mole percent. Um, now we have, and I didn't, you know, there, we have a lot more data uh, dealing with the subject, but we actually have synthesized our own materials in house and we have gone to uh, sulfonation levels. Um, it turns out though that, uh, you know, killing everything in five is <laughs> what we get. Uh, so it, uh, we haven't done the kinetic study for all sulfonation levels. Uh, we could do it with something simple like Staphylococcus aureus, but our initial point was to try to look at how generally applicable is this approach uh, to look at a, as the title um, you know showed, a broad spectrum. So that's goal. Um, but yes, we could start to look at variations in the kinetics of inactivation based on different uh, sulfonation levels. And my suspicion is that we're looking at changes on the order of four, even below minutes. So I don't know if those studies would be terribly, terribly meaningful from an application standpoint. Okay. Um, but yeah, in principle, you could, you, we could actually take the commercial materials and sulfonate them further. Uh, it just means that the material will want to swell more in water, um, which means that there's more stress buildup on those end blocks uh, that act as physical crosslinks. And the more swelling that occurs, the more stress on those, the weaker the material will become. So get to those low tear strength materials that are usually indicative of the the chemical for gels. I see. Thank you. So, uh, uh, since you mentioned the uh, uh, the 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 uh, percentage, I mean that you can do the uh, in in lab. So, quickly on the that the slides I mentioned earlier. So, you have that uh, uh, figure, the uh, TM or SCM uh, uh, A and B. So, uh, I I only see that the the, the, the reference bar is the resolution is different. Uh, one is uh, lower, one's higher. Oh. So what what are the story? What what what, what is the? I, I I do see an interesting pattern, and the one A is seems to be uh, just uh, random, and the the other one is uh, somehow uh, it's much has a pattern. Older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's actually the first line <laughs> in that um, <clears throat> in the, it says that the material is solvent templatable. So what happens is, and these, by the way, are 3D images. So it's a technique that uh, we actually pioneered in my lab many years ago. Um, and the, uh, the, the reason why they're different is because we use different solvents. So in the case of A, we use composed of 
toluene and isopropanol. Uh, I believe it was 85% toluene, 15% isopropanol. And what that gives you are ionic micelles. So the white areas that you see there are the, the ionic microdomains and they're embedded in a hydrophobic matrix, okay? If we B and we go and use tetrahydrofuran, which is a single solvent, but it is slightly polar as an organic solvent, we get a combination of cylinders, which you see in the lower right. You also have lamellae, which are those kind of stripes, the bilayers. Um, it turns out that from a standpoint, the lamellae uh, actually turns out to be the thermodynamically stable material. But because of the different solvents that are used, we can actually change the, the micelles that you see at top to the combination of cylinders and lamellae that you see in the bottom. The reason why the scale marker is different is just to, to show more detail of the micelles because they're smaller than the other structures. And it's the only reason why there's a change in scale. But same material, just different solvent processing. That's all. I see. Interesting. This is a very interesting material. Yeah. Uh, oh, looking forward to know more. Yeah. I'll get back to the mic to. Uh, here. Yeah, uh, no, Jamie, I just wanted Jamie to have the chance to ask this question because I I know he has uh, another one. Only one. That's funny, Cecilia. Um, I actually, so I won't take up too much of your time, but first of all, I want to say again, um, all, um, honestly, Dr. Swanzag, you are nothing like Don Quixote. Your goals have been much more achievable, <laughs> um, even though they are yeah, also impressive. There's no windmills for you, sir. Um, well, I, I guess so stop, I guess I have to stop building the windmill in my backyard then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, keep it. It's energy efficient, yeah? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so my questions here is, um, one, is, is there any issues in, with this process in any way about microbes adapting to anything like this in the future and connecting this to it? Could this self-sterilizing polymer be used in... In medical equipment, I was thinking like like bandages and plasters when people are like out and about in places that might be prone to having these kind of things, not on the inside, but on the like to the outside, so that the, the plaster protects from any extra things going on. Thank you very much. Okay, good questions. So um, the first time I presented this at a biomedical center in Poland. Uh, this fellow gets up in a huff at the end of my presentation. You're going to be creating the next uh, um, evolution of Frankenstein microbes. <laughs> I was just like, okay, how do I respond to that? <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, your, your question it hits right at that matter, uh, right on the pinpoint there. Um, because microbes cannot develop resistance to a general type of stimulation like this. Um, 
all the drugs that have been developed, even the ones for B2, they all target. And so that's where problems arise with regard to resistance. This is, you know, our materials, if you want to think of it in a very crude way, this is like dropping them into an acid, you know. Um, and yes, my, some microbes are acid resistant. Um, the pH, it's the sudden change in pH that can cause uh, the death of the microbe. And so that's why even some of the microbes we looked at, they're inherently um, acid resistant. Even the human coronavirus strain, that turns out to be more acid resistant than SARS-CoV-2, uh, even though they're very structurally. Um, but uh, it's that sudden change in pH that really, really kills. Uh, and even if it takes 20 minutes rather than five minutes, it's still quite effective. Um, so I, I'm not overly concerned about microbes developing a resistance to this, especially since it is, um, I mean, once it becomes more and more generic and widespread in terms of use, it, it, there's always a possibility, um, but I just don't see how, because it doesn't mean that, okay, it has to develop a new protein strand. It needs to develop a new um, part on the membrane. It won't matter. Um, so that's why I don't think that a microbe can develop resistance. Um, now, maybe I'll come back in a few hundred years and say, oops, I didn't think about that. Uh, I, I just don't see it happening uh, right now. And again, I'll point out I'm not a microbiologist, so I can't, you know, a hundred percent certainty. But I can say that to the best of my knowledge as a scientist, I don't see any way that it can. Um, and I have been proven wrong before, so it wouldn't be the first time. Um, then to answer the second part of your question, um, can these be used uh, on bandages and so forth to prevent occurrence from maybe getting into a wound? Yes, actually they can. Uh, so as long as the uh, polymer doesn't act with skin. So if you have a bandage on something and you put this polymer on the outside of the bandage, it will work fine. There will be no problem whatsoever. Um, and so, yes, there there are applications, for, but not direct wound dressings. These would be more indirect, uh, but they they would function quite well. Um, and so, yes, it could be used for that purpose. So, good good point. I really hadn't thought much about that. Thank you very much for answering my questions, Doctor. And I may be reaching out for those uh, journals you've promised before. So thank oh, you very much for your time. Pleasure. Just, just drop me an email. I'm happy to. Thank you very much. And thank you for, your, for being out there doing all this work and for talking to us today. Thank you. That's me. That's oh, me for the it, night. It's thank been you. my pleasure. I, I really enjoy uh, talking with you all. And, you know, 
what you've done with this uh, idea of the science society, uh, I think is absolutely brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Rich. Um, that's great to hear. That, uh, thank you so much for sharing um, your wonderful research here. And I wanted to support, um, you know, what you said that since these polymers attack membrane surfaces, it's not very like it's highly unlikely that they can somehow change DNA structure since they kind of basically dissolve the membrane and you know the rest will just dissolve i don't think there will be you know any concerns of changing the dna it's just cell death but um that's what you know we want to kill the germs on surfaces so i think this is such a great um and especially the the um, the part you said that you were developing now very affordable polymers uh, to achieve this is really wonderful because in many places around the world, well, in, even in our countries, you know, to be priced, um, have a low price is really important for many different cities, parts of cities and, and applications where people maybe don't have um, so much money. So I think that that's another very important work you're doing and I applaud you for that. So yeah, thank you so much for being, um, for doing your work that you do and for being here uh, explaining it to us. And um, yeah, please continue, have all the funding and you probably do have anyways, but we still wish you, you know, well and uh, that you continue your very impactful research and um, yeah, that, um, that everything works out wonderfully for you and your lab. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. And uh, again, glad to be of service. Yeah, thank you again. Um, thank you, Rich. And thank you everyone on stage for adding to this, you know, wonderful com conversation and the people in the audience who also posted in the chat. Thank you so much for um, making this, you know, the whole experience really amazing. Um, the typical science society experience. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I guess we're shutting down the, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I guess we're shutting down the room now, right? Uh, we're turning things down, I guess, a couple of <laughs> announcements. Oh, sorry. Did you have something to say? Oh, never mind. No, no. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, a couple of announcements. I'm sorry? No, no, I'm just kidding that <laughs> whether doctor is facing some cold or cough infection or what. Uh, yeah, I've got COVID right now. Oh, no. Oh, well, I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have on July 11, Dr. Shen coming in uh, talking about continuous Bose-Einstein condensation. Um, and also the same day later on in the day, um, we have um, and the author, Howard Bloom, talking about um, Global Brain, which is actually a book. So this is going to be really interesting. Um, so yeah, please stay tuned for that in many other rooms that are coming up in the Science Society. Um, yeah, so... That's all I just wanted to say. Thank you all for this uh, great room. Thank you, Dr. Spontak, for coming back. And, you know, if you have time, please come back again <laughs> um, and spend time with us because we really do enjoy your time here with us. Um, so, yeah, we're just going to close down the room. Katerina, do you have anything last thing to say before I close? 
Oh, no, thank you so much, Lucia. And, um, yeah, thanks. Uh, follow the club if you like discussions like this. Thank you, Rich. And again, you're always welcome to come back and, and, and share at any time. And we hope you feel better soon. And thank you for making it nevertheless. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate all the sentiments. And uh, again, it's my All right. Uh, so yeah, we will be closing down the room in five, four, three. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. 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 bye.